Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Susan Griffin is back on Rational in Portland with some updates. You'll remember Susan from her episode where she talked about how she was terrorized by living in the middle of downtown during the 2020 riots, not able to sleep, um, physically assaulted by rioters, um, screamed at, treated horribly, just loud commercial munition sounds going off every single night and just it was really disrupt disrupting her mental and physical health um and Susan you were in a documentary where you talked about this after the episode I was I was in a documentary where I talked about that it, you were great thank you we're gonna link we'll link to it in the show notes I was really, really nervous and really scared about doing that because then my face was out there yes yeah. And um, it, I overcame the fear because I, I believe that people need to hear uh, the story of what it was like for downtown residents living in Portland during the 2020 riots. And not enough people knew what was going on. And I think because of that documentary and the podcast I did with you before, um, my name is out there, my voice is out there. Travis Travis Brown, right? That's it. That's it. And yes. he's from Signal Productions. Yes. The Signal Productions. Yeah. 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 You were great in that. Peter Bogosian was in it. Nancy Rommelman was in it. Um, there were a number of people. Gabriel it, Johnson was in it. It must have felt affirming. Did it, you when you watched it? Did it feel affirming? It was really affirming. I had no idea that Nancy or Peter were going to be in it. So when I actually saw the entire thing. Um, yeah, that's that. That's what was really affirming for me. Yeah, you know, it, it validated my reality when so many people have questioned it and still question it. Some legitimization. Yes. Yes. So, who? Obviously, very online, very ideological people who want us to believe that everything's great in Portland challenge you and call you a liar and they kind of do that with everybody they're kind of a people group and I would sort of put them at at the very extreme part of the Portland populace are there people out and about not on Twitter that you feel I don't know what gaslit by that would be the term that I would use who you feel like don't validate your experience uh there there are a few people um not very many, though, because I don't know a whole lot of people in real life anymore. I, um, quite honestly, I'm, I'm afraid to meet new people in Portland because I'm afraid of being gaslit. But, you know, recently I met someone and, and this person, you know, questions my reality, um, doesn't believe that things were as bad as they were. 
or as bad as I say that they were. Um, and also claims that uh, they have no idea what or who Antifa is. <laughs> they live here? That's what they say? That's what they say. That's what they say. So, you know, I'm not real willing to, you know, I have, I have a small group of people that I hang out with in my apartment, at my apartment building, but other than that, no. I am thinking about, however, going back to some 12-step recovery program. Do you want me to move the mic up? So that it's close, because people can't see you, but you are in a wheelchair. Your legs are weak, you were saying, and you have a hard time walking. Mm-hmm. And I just, is that more comfortable? Yeah, you sound better. This is good. Okay, okay. Okay, that's better for me too. Yeah. Okay. And so um, for people who, you know, obviously I'm the only one physically here in the room, but I, I see that you're in a wheelchair. You said you've been using it for a, a about, while now. About six months. Yeah. But of course, we have this Americans with Disabilities Act lawsuit going on filed by John DeLorenzo against the city because people like you with wheelchairs cannot traverse the sidewalks because of all the homeless camps and poop and vomit and garbage and things all over the... Um, actually, in the last couple of months, it has become a little bit easier. Um, it is getting cleaned up a little bit more downtown. But there are still the occasions when, you know, I'll be going down the sidewalk and, you know, at the end of the block, it only takes one tent to block a sidewalk. That's right, yeah. You know, and like in December, I was going up to uh, the corner store to buy a pack of cigarettes and I ran into blocked sidewalks blocked by Peabot in the South Park blocks. They were taking a tree down or something. Oh, I saw that. So they had all these uh, city trucks parked up on the sidewalks. Did they have an alternate route for you to go? The only alternate route was to go down through the center of the park blocks where all the people are using actively or harassing or, you know. By using, do you mean using drugs? Using drugs, yeah, smoking, whatever. So so you have to sort of go through the middle of this open-air drug den Right. Because you can't use a sidewalk because this city bureau is is blocking it. Right. And then I ran into Lisa Balick at the store and I was I was really upset too because I had witnessed my first ever open air fentanyl deal to a teenager. I've seen Where was this? This is right in the South Park blocks, one block from where I live. How did you know it was a teenager? Because when he passed me with his friends um, they were kind enough to ask me if I needed to push up the hill to go see Hondo. Oh, oh. And, you know, being that close to me, I could tell that they were... Kids. You know, yeah, 15, 16 years old. Wow. And so I was upset about that, and I was upset about the block sidewalks, and I ran into Lisa Balick, who was doing a... who was interviewing the store owner um, about the ban on menthol cigarettes and vaping products. And Lisa Balick asked me, how That's are you? That's a TV reporter. Yes. Yeah. Coin Six. Yes. And I, I saw her and I said, Lisa Balick. And she said, yes, who are you? And I told her my name and she said, how are you? And in about a minute, I told her about how frustrated I was about the drug dealing and about block sidewalks and about, you know, fentanyl being dealt to our kids in city blocks and about the crime in my neighborhood. 
And all she could tell me was, well, people are rude. And then she walked out. And I, thought, I honestly thought that she would come back and talk to me. She went out and talked to her photographer, I guess. Hmm. And I waited for her. And she got in her car and drove off. So it was more important for her to do a story on uh, the cigarette ban, upcoming cigarette ban, than it was for her to take a couple of minutes and talk to a resident elderly in a wheelchair about the, about the crime, about the drug dealing, about the block sidewalks, about the homeless. And you've been assaulted since, again, since we last talked. Yes. In, um, in May, right? I was assaulted in May when I pissed off a guy that he, he walked by me and was walking up the sidewalk, and I looked down at my phone for a moment to, take some, or to look at some pictures that I had taken of some vandalism from the night before. And I glanced up, and he was running down the sidewalk back at me. And he got right up in my face, and I could feel the spit hitting me, and his spit hitting me in my face. And where, was where was this? Park me. blocks? Morrison and Broadway. Okay. Right in, the, right in the middle of downtown. Right in the middle of downtown, right, right by Pioneer Square. And this man raised his fist up, and he came down, and he hit me right in the chest. And it, it almost knocked me down. You know, I almost fell in the street, and I, I, I went to bow down because I, I, I didn't know if he was going to raise his fist and hit me again. Um, and then he just turned around and walked off. But I couldn't believe, like, there were three big construction dudes standing 10 feet away from me who did nothing. You know, and one little guy, obviously a gay man, no big deal with me there, but obviously, a little short gay guy came up. Because you're gay yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, oh, honey, are you okay? Mm. He was the only one that even asked if I was okay. So that left me with a fractured breastbone and internal chest contusions, which I was healing from. And then I got, and then I contracted COVID a few weeks later. Oh, so. I'm sorry. Yeah, so the co the COVID itself wasn't that bad. I mean, being sick wasn't that bad. What was so bad was the fracture in the breastbone, the internal chest contusions. How do you know that and you fractured it? Did they were they able to do films of the hospital? They did do films. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, and then the the um, radiologist called me a few days later and said we found a crack in that bone. Oh my God. So if he is there anything they can do with about that? Or they just wrap it. They just wrap it. Rest. So you're just in pain. Yeah, and then when I got the COVID, that's all in your yes, chest anyway. Yes, right, and you're coughing. Yeah, so that's what made the COVID so miserable. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And then this, uh, the wheelchair, what happened in the last six months that caused you to need a wheelchair? Well, I've been pretty, really sedentary since 2019. I was very sick three times, yeah, once in May, once in August, and once in December of 2019, so... The majority of the year I was down. And then 2020 came and the lockdown came. And so I'm still down, locked inside. Right. And then the riots started. And then I didn't go outside at all because I was too scared. Well, and the couple times you did go, did go outside, you were assaulted. Assaulted, harassed, verbally abused. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I don't know that, that I was he I was healing from that that attack physically and emotionally and mentally 
because that really the that, May attack. Yeah, the May attack that really set me back. I mean, I was in really bad shape anyway mm. at that point, and um, I was just I was just starting to feel better about about myself and what happened with that. Accept it, I guess, and move on. You know, when I was robbed in December in, in front of Target downtown. Right down here, down the street? Right down the street, yeah. Brown so I'm pointing, because it's just, it's literally, we could just walk there in two minutes right now if we wanted to. Yeah. You were robbed outside the store, inside the store? Right outside of the store. What had happened was, I, as I was coming up the sidewalk, I saw a homeless guy, obviously higher than a kite, and he was stumbling down the sidewalk, and he crossed 10th, and... As I reached around the corner to open or to hit the button to open the door automatically, what he did was he kind of like stumbled and fell into my lap and then just moved on. And I really didn't when you, oh, you were in the wheelchair, I was in my wheelchair, and he stu- he stumbled. His body fell into your lap. Mm-hmm. You're such a. T- I mean, I'm looking at you. You I'm must tiny. weigh seventy pounds. Didn't what, didn't that hurt you? One hundred and fourteen. Yeah, it did hurt me. It did hurt me. And it it, it 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 startled me. And so, like, it was really cold that day, and it was raining. And so I got, um, I had a blanket over my lap, and I had my phone in my lap. Ooh. And apparently what happened was when he stumbled, he took the phone and then just kept going down the sidewalk. And I got into Target, and I stopped at the oh top of the God. ramp, and oh I, my God. I straightened out my blanket. I didn't even think about the phone because I was so startled. Yeah. And I went in, and I picked up three items and went back to the pharmacy. So I wasn't even in the store two minutes, and I realized my phone was gone. Were you able to do that? Was it an iPhone? Could you do that, find my iPhone it thing? Wasn't, it wasn't an iPhone. Okay, so I didn't have a tracker. No. Did you report it? Have you reported any of this stuff to the police, like the broken chest, the broken... Um, um, I called. Them, I called the, every time I called the non-emergency number. I couldn't get through. Yeah, and well, that's so, a big problem. And so it got real frustrating. And um, as a result of that, no, I haven't. Yeah, although when you were punched in the chest, that's. I mean, that's an emergency. Did yeah. you did you try calling like emer- emergency emergency like number one or anything? All I wanted to do was get home. Yeah, because there was no. See, that's the thing. People are saying crime is down. I think they don't realize crime is being underreported because no one can, everybody understands that no one can get through to emergency or non-emergency. Right. Sometimes if you do, even emergency, even 911, you're put on hold. I think people feel that, what's the point? I mean, they're not going to, they're just going to charge them with a misdemeanor or something and let them out if they charge them at all. Exactly. The assault in May, I was scared to report because I didn't know if they did catch this guy and throw him in jail, if he saw me again, if he would recognize yeah, me. Yeah, I'd be scared retaliation. too. Yeah, because you're right downtown. It's not like you live somewhere where you can drive away. And, and, and I've, I've seen him a couple of times since then. Mm. And I just turn the other direction. I don't, you know... The police can't do anything. I know they're they're hamstrung. There's no there's no justice for victims in Portland. No, anymore. there's not. And it doesn't matter if you're assaulted or if your car is stolen or if you've got someone that's murdered. Oh no! And, like know, the Adon murder. Time. Yeah, I mean, the guy who murdered the mother of I think it was six children. Yes. 
And he had a history of strangulation of her. And, of course, there was documented alleged domestic violence. And uh, the judge let him out without bail, went right back, was accused of strangling her. Judge set bail for $20,000 for the first time. And then, of course, Portland Freedom Fund bails him out because he's a person of color and they don't feel that he should be incarcerated. Right. And he goes and allegedly kills her. Right. And and then we've got the guy who's, who allegedly ate the face off of a 78-year-old on the Max platform. Right. Who says he, he was on fentanyl. Although, you know, as, as everybody was commenting on that news story saying fentanyl doesn't really do that. That sounds like meth. I mean, I... Meth or bath salts. Yeah, I mean, this this guy probably not is not an accurate historian, but I'm sure fentanyl was in the mix somewhere because it's in the mix of all this stuff. Yeah. I'm sure that P2P meth was too because that's in the mix of all this stuff. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if there's PCP out there because PCP makes you do some really crazy stuff too. No one ever mentions PCP, but I think about it. I don't know that there needs to be with this new meth. Oh, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't <laughs> think so, but why not throw more into the party? Portland no, that's, seems yeah. to like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. It'd be, you'd think the cartel would be all over that. It's another substance to sell that they can sprinkle fentanyl on. And what, what else? What else is going on? What else do you want to talk about? Because I know you have a lot on your mind. Well... <coughs> Last summer when I was assaulted. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to move. I know you're limited in mobility, so I'm going to move, like, the Kleenex and stuff closer to you. Um, I had been really, really depressed anyway, but I, in October of 2021, I remember calling 911 one night. Um, Because I was suicidal, and I just needed some help. And that's the night that I was on the phone for over an hour waiting for someone to pick up the phone. On hold, or? No, just waiting. On hold, yeah, on hold. At 9-1-1? For over an hour? For over an hour. And then when when somebody finally said something, I mean, what was the conversation? When they finally got on the phone, they never answered. They didn't. You just they hung never up. Answered. I had to hang up. Oh well, thank God that you didn't follow through with that, and you're here with us today. Well, I, th- I think that that hour on the phone waiting gave me enough time to, you know, pull myself down off that ledge. But what people don't realize is just how depressing it got for me because I woke up every day for over a year in the mornings, and literally had to decide if I was going to live or die today. Yeah. And as difficult as it was, you know, I decided to live. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't come close to, um, you know, losing my mind and jumping out the window. I live on the 10th floor. It would have been simple, you know. But um, I, I was... I had all I, I thought about all the different ways I could do it, you know, go go to the bridge, but I'm horrified of the dark and I'm horrified of the water. I mean, I just it was it was really, really difficult. And I cried every single day. Every single day. What about um 
Are there mental health services that are available to you, like via the Oregon Health Plan? Well, in 2020, when I called the crisis line, they hung up on me. The city of Portland... Remind us of that again, because I think you told us about that on the episode, but I'd like to hear that again. Um, I called the crisis line one night during the riots. Um, I know the guy on the other end of the phone could hear the hovering helicopters and LRAD and the ranting and the chanting and the sirens and the bullhorns. I know he could hear all of that. And he kept telling me, but Susan, these aren't riots. These are mostly peaceful protests. And of course, the more he said that to me, the more it triggered me and the more angry I got. And he finally said to me, well, Susan, my job is to determine whether or not you're a danger to yourself or others, and I determine that you're not. And he hung up. Oh, my God. This is this, is it run by the city? Multnomah County. Multnomah County Crisis Crisis Line? Crisis Line, yeah. And so that didn't do me any good. The city of Portland, after an email I sent oh to... Oh, my God. After an email I sent to the mayor, they gave my name, all my information, all of my information without permission to Cascadia. Yeah, I remember that. And then Cascadia ended up scoffing at me and laughing at me. Tell us more about that. Did Cascadia contact you at the behest of the mayor's office after that was sent at to the them? At the behest of someone's office. Yes. I don't know. Okay, but somebody yes. in the city. Because yeah. of your email. Yeah. And my email, I mean, I've been really honest with the mayor in my emails. I've been begging for him to address us and help us, assist us, and there's no reply. And so, like, I called him every night for probably a year. I don't know. But in this email, I told him. I, this is probably the email where I told him there was a suicide note in my drawer and that city leaders' names were listed in this letter. And I was serious. So the next day, I get woke up, or I woke up and I looked at my phone. I had a message. I had no idea who they were. I had no idea what they wanted. It pissed me off. I felt like I got doxxed. And so, of course, I was angry at them. And you know, people don't like my anger. I don't like my anger. But you, th- what's so weird is you think the crisis line and and professional organizations like Cascadia would be used to dealing with people in crisis who might not be completely together mentally, who might be undergoing a mental health crisis and might sound angry Mm -hmm. or a plethora of emotions, Mm -hmm. potentially many all at once. And it's almost like you were talking to uh, somebody who picked up a phone at Fred Meyer. Yeah. You know, I called, it was after Cascadia, it was after Cascadia hung up on me, and I called 911 one night, and I did get through, and this was, this was during the riots, actually, this was during the riots. I called 911 one night, and I was sitting in my window with my legs hanging out, and all I needed to do was just have somebody talk to me, because I'm alone in my apartment. Of and course. This lady picked up the phone during the riots and talked to me for five minutes. And I don't even think that she probably realized the situation that I was in, sitting with my legs hanging out the window. But that woman saved my life. Portland police saved my life that night. 
was night. It was night 41 of the riots that I called 911. And of course, they went on for another 140 yeah. some nights. Yeah. So life just got really out of hand and really out of control. And what do you think it was like? Obviously. There's a reason that we're, I mean, Oregon is always in the news for be doing terrible, doing a terrible job with mental health, addiction, I mean, a million things, but certainly mental health, we're almost always dead last, if not close to dead last, uh, certainly in the bottom 10 mm -hmm. consistently. So I know you talked about having a plan to potentially get out. Um, do, have you talk to anybody about mental health care leaving Portland so that you can go somewhere. Yeah. So that you can go somewhere that has a more accessible mental health care system. Last summer I had planned to go to a place called spring Valley, spring Valley, Texas. Right. And, um, of course, the assault and then catching COVID, because I was going to leave in July, and getting sick and, and being hurt put that all off. However, what I've done now, and, and what I thought about doing last year, was to change my insurance and go back to Kaiser, which I had had up until 2019. I had a psychiatrist there that I, I liked and I trusted. Which is hard to find. Yeah, and so not not December like last month, but in 2021, I had planned on changing my insurance to go back to Kaiser to get back to him so that I could get some help. But because I was so um, exhausted all the time, sleep deprived, stressed out, all that stuff, time just gets away from me sometimes. So this year, in December, I called, and I realized I only had two days to change my insurance. I was really pushing it. But I did change my insurance. I'm going to go back to Kaiser. And they're working on getting me back into the doctor that I had and getting me into some therapy and maybe a couple of group sessions. And Kaiser, one good thing about Kaiser, she asked me if I wanted the crisis line number. And I said, no, not if it's Multnomah County. She probably laughed. She did. And she said, no, Kaiser has their own. So... I feel, I feel like you I'm, still have Kaiser, right? I have Kaiser now. Yeah, I just switched back over to okay, Kaiser. Okay, good. Okay, good. So, can you go back to this psychiatrist? He's with Kaiser. Yeah. So that. So, do you have an appointment coming up or anything? Um, it's. She said I had an intake last week. Oh, good. Okay, and, great. Yeah. Okay, thank and God. She, yeah, she told me it'd probably be a couple of months before I could get back in. Of course. Yeah. But if I have something to look forward to that I think is going to help me, that I know will help me. Yeah. I can hang in there for a little while longer and wait to go see him. Okay, I hope that you do. So I can get into a therapist before I see him, and that'll help. Oh, great. Okay. So, yeah. When do you think that will be? Um, as soon as I get on my Kaiser account and find the phone numbers to call. Okay, okay. Yeah. They do it. Do it after this. Do it after this. Yeah. They shut my internet off at home, so. Why? Well, you know, I've had my internet with Comcast for 10 years. I've never been late. Maybe once I was late in a decade. 
And I was be kind of behind in my bills in, in November, so I paid half the bill thinking I would catch it up in December with December's payment. It shouldn't be a problem, right? But then I got robbed, and then I had to buy a new phone. Right. And so um, there went that. And there's no... This is subsidized housing, right? There's, but they don't offer internet. They offer internet downstairs in the basement, but you can. You only, have to get down there. You can only use their computers. Oh. So, I'm trying to. And get, there's probably somebody on those all the time. Yeah, and I'm trying to get back, um, or I'm trying to get service through Verizon instead of Comcast, but we're having some difficulties, or I'm having difficulties getting an. Uh, copy of a utility bill sent to them that they can read. Why do you think that is? Well, it's because I don't have a printer at home, yeah. and so I don't, I don't have anything to scan it with, and it's got to be a picture of the bill. What like, about the library? That's an idea. You know, because I mean, and actually, I talk to the, it's right next door to here, and I talk to the librarians fairly often, and they seem happy to help anybody with anything really I mean actually I, I talked to one the other day who said the, th the thing they don't like is you know having to carry around naloxone and dealing with people overdosing in the bathrooms that's really not what they signed up for but they love helping people with navigating things like that yeah I'll get that taken care of I, mean, I hope so. I know, but being with I want you to stay, I, I want you here on this earth. Yeah. You know, it's like I have my phone, which I can get online with, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but I've never used a phone for the internet before, so it's really frustrating to me. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not, it's small, and it's, it's difficult um, for certain, it doesn't work for everything. Right, right. So I'll get that dealt with in the next week. Yeah. I'll be around. I'm not it shouldn't be around. so hard to access, though. It just seems wrong. Well, you know, Comcast has a program. It's a discounted program for people like me who are disabled or maybe on SNAP or whatever. Yeah. I've been eligible for this program since I got service with them, but I didn't know about it when I got service. So the times that I've called them to inquire about that and just switching over, here's what they tell me. Ma'am, you have to shut your service off for... 90 days, and then you can, re re you can reopen your account and get the discounted fee. Really helpful. I'm like, 90 days without the internet, huh? Hmm. So they kind of screw you, and they make you pay the, the outrageous amount, like $77 a month, which is 8% of my income. My God. <laughs> why, why do you, th why, where is the um, latest round of, of despair coming from, do you think? Like recently? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's it started with, you know, the man who was attacked out in Gresham and had his ear and his face halfway eaten off. It started with that. It, it, it was the church fire. It was going up there and watching the demolition of the of the church of the church and when when I got the video of that of of the steeple falling it, that was so symbolic to me because it was just like that is the fall of the city it just 
It just symbolized the entire fall of downtown. Another thing gone, another, another thing stripped from us, from our, not just in the city, but from my neighborhood, you know? There's so much that's been lost downtown. You know, McDonald's is closed. Starbucks is closed. The pet store up the street that I used to go to is closed. Everything closed. And so, I don't know, the church, the church fire was huge. And then there's a woman who got off of Max, not very far from here, and she was hit in the back of the head by some crazy guy that just walked up and hit her in the head with a bag full of who knows what. It was just all, the, all of a sudden all these different stories started hitting the news and I just fell into it and fell into like hopelessness. It's like there's no hope for there's no hope for Portland coming back anytime soon. It's gonna take a couple of generations, I think. You know, and then Governor Governor Brown goes out and she walks out unscathed from anything she did, you know. Joanne Hardesty moves on her merry way. And we know she'll be back. Yeah, because charter reform passed. So for those of you who don't know, there was a ballot measure to reform the city form of government and create a system where there are more commissioners. They're elected geographically. I think a lot of people agreed with a lot of the stuff in there. But it was also sort of created to... I think get people um, like Commissioner Hardesty reelected, and in fact, OPB said something on Twitter. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But they said now that charter reform has passed, Joanna's a lock. Those are the words that they used: a lock to come back and be on the city council. Joanna Hardesty. So she's she's the commissioner who defunded the police by what twenty seven million dollars and um, etc. Yeah, and then and then sat back and watched everything explode and just it do absolutely nothing but encourage it. You know, she incited the violence, she incited the riots, she supported it, she lied about the police, and she's not worth a crap. I think she said I think I think a couple times she said things like we don't want violence, we don't it, it made some attempts to denounce the violence. But it was difficult because, you're right, she also accused the police of setting fires. And then, of course, as fire commissioner, Mayor Wheeler pointed out that she, that's something that she would have to deal with, and then she walked that back. Um, it, she she and publicly said that they, the police, as opposed to Antifa, were setting fires. I believe, too, that she had more to do with it than Ted Wheeler. That's my opinion. You know, Ted Wheeler's mother died right at the beginning of the riots. And in my opinion, I think that Ted probably had some, or possibly had some deep hidden psychological issues. And those surfaced when the riots started, when his mother died. I mean, who was in charge? As they might for anybody. At, at, you and, know. and Hardesty was in charge when he was gone for his mother's funeral. So who, who else do you blame for the riots if the mayor wasn't available and she was in charge? 
Are you comfortable? Yeah, I'm comfortable. Do you want to get up and walk around or anything, do you think? No, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Let me know if you do, because I know you're not um, as healthy as you were last time I saw you. But hopefully, when, you know, if we can get back in that Kaiser system, you will be again. I think the doctors at Kaiser are going to be a little bit more understanding. My my other doctor, I would tell her things that were going on, like with my body. There were some things things changing in my body, and she would just look at me and say, well, you're getting old. You're getting old. The weight loss that I've had isn't because I'm old. I weighed 178 pounds, you know, three years ago, and I weigh 114 now. That's a lot of weight gone. You know, and I got down as low as 106. And that was all from stress and all of that, all of that. I, there was no appetite. I couldn't eat. I couldn't keep food down. So I'm hoping that the doctors at Kaiser will, you know, be more willing to put me in, like, maybe some physical therapy to, to build my legs back up so I don't have to be in this chair. Yeah. You know, and help me with the diet and uh, help me figure out how to gain the weight back. You know, I want to be healthy again. I want to be who I was, at least physically. Do, do you think um, you're going to still try to execute a plan to leave Portland? Not in the immediate future. Because you have too many other pressing things that you need to take care of, like your mental and physical health. Exactly. Yeah. I'd like to be gone by the time the charter reform comes through. But I don't know how I can make that happen. I need to work, and I can't work. What would you like to do? I mean, if you, if you were able to work, what would you like to do? I'd like to do what I've always done, which is I wait tables, work in restaurants. That's my... Uh, waiting tables is my profession. Which is very physically demanding. Too physically demanding. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of depressing. I've always worked. I mean, even, even when I've been disabled, I was disabled at the age of 36. And through the years, the times that I've been able to work, I've always worked. But I haven't been able to work since I came to Portland. I'm not used to that. I like to be around people, and I like to be of service to people. I like to be helping people however I can. And so I, I miss that. I miss working a lot. Yeah, you seem sad. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, yeah, I made it, I did make a new friend recently, and, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to explain to her that, I, I haven't always been the way that I am, you know, like politically outspoken or I've just, I've never been this way. I never worried about politics, never talked about you it You didn't before. have to. You didn't right. have to. It, it, it wasn't the, the decay of city politics weren't impacting your life because it wasn't in decay. Right. And w once it did, once it did affect my life, yeah, that's when I that's when I became outspoken. 
it just initially in the very beginning of all of it, all I wanted was um, for the city to help us find a way to get through the riots. That's all I asked for initially. Just help us find a way to get through this. We're here every night. And now I just want them to step up and be accountable and say, I don't know, I don't know, maybe help move a couple of us out of downtown or, or something. Where would you, you know? want to go if you could move out of downtown? I, would you want to go outside of, of city county? I would like to go out to like out towards Beaverton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, tell us, I mean, Beaverton's, so pe for people who don't know, Beaverton is a suburb in uh, the metro area called, um, it's in a county called Washington County. And it's just to the west of us. Why would you pick Beaverton? Because in Beaverton, they hold people accountable, you know, for their crimes. Um, from what I understand, they have their homeless out there, but it's not like here. It's not. It's not like here. And Kevin Barton is their DA, and he's a very different, very different prosecutor than my, Mike Schmidt. Yeah. Mike Schmidt. I've never seen anything happen anywhere like what he's let happen or what he's done or what he doesn't do, you know, however you want to look at that. It's like, I want him to go back to Louisiana, never come back. I think a lot of people would. I, th I do think, though, it's a multifactored system. I mean, uh, the Tina Kotek-led, now she's now our governor, the legislature put out a, another decarceration bill that they think sort of tries to, it's law now, it's, it began in July, that they think sort of tries to balance victims' interests with um, the legislature's stated overall interest in not incarcerating people. But I don't have any hope that that's going to be successful or executed in any kind of successful manner I don't either I don't either the one um, good thing is uh, the story I don't know if you read the story of the person who pushed the, the toddler into the into the light yeah. rail tracks yes on the on the public transit platform and the one good thing and I think the new bill kind of helped with this, potentially. I don't know. Because um, what I learned in doing some research for an article that I helped Nancy Rommelman with in the Washington Examiner called A Murder in Portland, it, looking at that Adon case, what I learned is that it seems, potentially, as a matter of course, after you're arrested, you go to a release officer. That's what they're called in Multnomah County. They do an interview of you, and if you score under a 6 my understanding is the release officer can just let you go, doesn't have to pass your file on to a judge for judicial review. And they do, my understanding is they do let people go. Um, Adon, Mohammed Adon, who killed uh, Rachel Abraham, uh, the the mother who who had the, the alleged history of strangulation and, and domestic violence, he was rated a four. Um, and, and, I, and, and the only reason a judge looked at that was because 
of the history of domestic violence, and of course the judge did let him go with no bail set the first time. Um, so I noticed when the kid was pushed off the max, max tracks, I looked at the files are public. Anybody can go to the courthouse and look at them. The, in the file with that particular individual, the judge is Celia Howes, who I know, and she's a, I, she's a newer judge. I don't know her history on the bench, but I know she was a great lawyer and, um, she's a good she's a really good smart person I have no doubt that she's a good judge but so far she seems like a great judge because she I, I, I think he's I think this particular person scored below a six and yet she she did decide to hold them and to Mike Schmidt's office's credit I think he argued that this person should be this particular person who pushed the kid into the light rail track should be held so and she did hold that person so far so um, that was that was something. One good thing. But, I mean, how sad is it, right, that we have to expect that that person will be released, and then when they're not, we we do a Hail Mary? <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you just never know who's standing next to you. Not anymore. And, you know, not anymore. I think I made a tweet this morning that said something like, murderers walk around us or amongst us everywhere. So you can't trust who's standing next to you anymore. It's horrible. Well, what else do you want to talk about? Um, you know, a lot of people think that I'm really anti-homeless. Um, a lot of people don't understand that um, well, I think I think everyone in Portland understands the homeless problem. Um, you mean that there are a lot of homeless people on the streets? That there's a lot of homeless people mm -hmm. on the streets. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how, where I'm going with this. Um, My partner of 15 years was homeless, and she was an addict and an alcoholic, and she was murdered on the streets in Colorado Springs in 2001, and she was dumped on the side of I-25. Every single time that she was picked up by the EMTs or the police or her ass drag, drug off to detox, that was three days or four days that I didn't have to worry about her, and I knew that she would be okay. But more importantly than that, it was three or four days that she had a chance to um, maybe reconsider what she was doing and how she was living her life and maybe make some changes. And twice she did. Twice she, she did get sober. She was able to stay sober for six months the first time and three months the second time. Um, she had a boss named Catherine, and Catherine adored her, and Catherine enabled her. Catherine got her apartment, paid her rent, paid the deposit, um, bought her food, uh, let her eat at work for free. Uh, Catherine gave her everything she needed because Catherine thought that giving her what she needed would save her life. And even Catherine ended up losing an excellent employee, a very close friend, 
And the last thing, the last time I talked to Catherine, she said, Susan, I never should have enabled her. I never should have gotten her an apartment. I never should have done those things for her. And at the time, did you feel like that wasn't, did you understand that to be enabling even at that time? At that time I did because I had been in and out of recovery myself. So I understood and I understood that. Um, so now when I talk about the homeless here and I talk about holding them accountable, that's what needs to be done. The city of Portland calls what they do compassionate. It's not compassionate to give someone a needle to go shoot up. It's not compassionate to leave somebody sleeping in squalor and intense. It's not compassionate to leave homeless women out there being raped every night. It's not compassionate to the rest of the community to be forced to look at this and walk around it and step over it and step in it. Or, or like you, in a wheelchair, not be able to navigate around it. Right. So people here get mad at me when I start talking about holding these homeless junkies, and that's what I call them, they're, they're, they're junkies. The drug addicts out there, they need to start being held accountable. They need to be given options. You know, first off, they need to be triaged. We need to get them off the street and get them triaged, take care of their medical needs. I talked with uh, an emergency room doctor a while back who was telling me some of the shape that these people come into the ER with. Oh, I can't imagine. You know, broken sores and open sores on their feet or the rest of their... I mean, he, some of the things he was telling me was just... It was unbelievable. So before you just give someone a, a keto, an apartment, you want them healthy, right? You, uh, you would think. So you, you would need to get them triaged, get them, and then figure, in, in, in the process of being triaged and treating them physically for their physical ailments, that's where they can figure out what kind of treatment. This is the kind of system that you wished for your former partner that she didn't have. Right that you think would have saved her life. Right. She went to detox. You know, she had the chances. I'll tell you what, if she, if she were up here, or if she would have been trying to, if, if she would have been living on the streets here in Portland, she would have been killed too. There's no doubt about it. Um, I'm sorry, I just lost track of No, it's saying. okay, it's a lot. I wanted her to live, but you know, I. Of course, she did. I went to Miami for a vacation, and I flew back home. This is in, in Colorado Springs, and I walked in the door. I'll never forget because I walked in the door and I dropped my bags and I looked at the clock and it just turned to noon, high noon. And as soon as I dropped the bags, there was a knock on my door and I answered the door and it was Connie. And. She stood there and she begged me, begged me for one more chance. Just let me come back one more time. I promise I'll be sober. I promise mm -hmm. I'll go to meetings. I promise, I promise, I promise. And I too had enabled her. And this one time I looked at her and I said, I can't let you come back until you're clean. That was the last time I ever saw her. Do you regret that? I did. 
I did have regrets about that. And I suppose sometimes I still do. You know, maybe if I, I would let her, maybe if I would let her come in this time, maybe this time she would have been able to do it. But the dozens of times I had done it before, it didn't work. You know, police were involved, fights, arguments. Mm-hmm. She held a knife to my throat and told me she'd slit my throat where I stood unless I left. There was nothing more I could do for her. You know, I put her in God's hands. You know, God's got to take care of this because I can't. So in Colorado at the time, there, it was it's similar to Portland in the sense that there were no, there were not the kind of services for her that she needed. There were services. There were services. There, they had a they had a detox center, and as a matter of fact, the detox center had a van that used to go driving through the homeless camp or encampments, I'm not sure how many there were back then, and they would pick people up that they would find drunk and passed out and drag their butts off to detox. Or if need be, they'd call an ambulance for them. So they actually had better services yeah. there. One night, Connie fell walking home from a bar in the ice and snow, and she laid there on the sidewalk, I don't know, or this parking, I think, I think it was a parking lot that she fell in. And by the time the detox van found her, she had bled so much that the, her head was stuck to the ice. But if they wouldn't have found her and picked her up and taken her away, she would have died that night. Mm. You know, She was sent to a treatment center called Senecor. In De- I think it was in Denver. It's a 180-day program. It's long-term, and it's for specifically for hardcore Excuse me. Users. And she that's when she was sober six months. And then she left there and that was it. So there were services back then for her. She did utilize them a few times. Just unfortunately for her, she was the type of addict that could not not use. She had to use, especially alcohol, she had to drink alcohol or she would go into DTs. She, she was chronic. So when people up here get pissed off at me when I start talking about how these people need to be held accountable, that they need treatment, they need treatment or jail. You know, one or the other. Is that what you would have wanted for your partner? Yeah. Because you think that would have saved her. I would have rather her gone to jail than to have been out on the streets and be raped as many times as she was. And especially to end up, you know, being raped and strangled and then dumped on the side of I-25. I'd have much rather her been in jail. I'd have much rather her been in, in the state hospital. Some place would have been better than where she was. I believe that. What do you say to people who say, um, what, we, what we just need to do is build more housing? I don't believe that's the answer. And just put them in housing. No, because then what you're doing, you know, they want to stop all the sweeps outside. Right. Okay, so. Well, and of course, they use the word sweeps. They're, they're not really sweeps. It's, it's people, they have to post notice. They post a notice. People come around with services. They offer services. They at city offers shelter. 
my understanding is um, joint or the joint office or it's city or county or mm-hmm. some governmental entity offers every kind of service under the sun and shelter. And then if they don't want it, they're asked to leave and clear the sidewalk or clear the entrance to a school or a business or something like that. But of course they term it sweeps. Right. But yet, yes, there, there is a group called stop the sweeps that wants these people to, that wants the homeless to stay on the streets. Right. Um, So what they want to do, in essence, is they want to clean the streets up. And they think the only way to do this is to move these people into housing. Um, And housing first isn't the answer. You can't move someone into an apartment who's drug addicted, who's mentally ill, who's potentially violent, um, and who's potentially a felon. Um, what they their argument is once they get into housing they're stabilized in a way they're they're not otherwise and then they can get the service they they they're more in in a in shape to get the services that they need right right the city of Portland deemed me homeless I remember that okay they deemed me homeless and so they they saved me and they got me into housing even though to this day yeah. I don't believe that I was homeless. Okay, so but I think it's great that you've got housing. Right. So all this Obviously. stuff happened. Right. So all this stuff happens, and then the riots come, um, and I end up in really struggling with my mental health and my my mental illnesses. And I'm told, not by anyone in the city, but by community residents, that I'm privileged, mentally ill. Who tells you this? People in the, within the community, especially from Joanne Hardesty's Facebook page. Her supporters would tell me that I was, um, what, what was that first word I just said? Privileged, mentally ill, meaning, yeah. I, was like, I was like, what do you mean by privileged, mentally ill? No one is privileged to be mentally ill. And they said, well, you're in housing now, so you're able to take care of yourself. Granted, I can take care of myself, but I needed help, and I couldn't get it. So they want to move these people from the streets into housing. Like, that's going to take care of the problem. All they're doing is they're sweeping the problem behind closed doors. What landlord or property manager in their right mind is going to want drug addicts, active drug addicts, living in their building? or the potential of violence, the potential of the drug dealing, all the ugliness that comes with that. I can't think of one property manager. And of course then the argument is that you're a NIMBY, you're not a my backyard person, that that people who, not everybody who does drugs is a criminal, that not everybody who does drugs is violent, that you're stigmatizing addiction, that there are plenty of people in nice neighborhoods that are addicts. I mean, what do you say to those kinds of arguments? I, um, I'm left speechless sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, why? Like, I mean, that's rare for you. <laughs> because... 
I don't think that a lot of these people that believe in housing first or that scream housing first actually understand addiction. I don't believe that they do. Um, and just moving someone into housing isn't going to take care of the addiction. If the addiction isn't taken care of, they cannot become self-sufficient members of society. They want to move 1,200 people off the streets and into housing in the next year, right? right. Go- governor Kotak. That's what the governor's saying. And I don't even see how that's possible. You're going to move 1,200 in. Okay, that would be great if they do that, right? And that leaves room for 2,500 more people to move into Portland to take advantage of the homelessness, the drug use, the lack of accountability, the lack of law enforcement. If these people can't handle... I mean, here's another thing that I think about, too, is we see a lot of tent fires Mm. in Portland. Yeah, the firefighters came on here and talked about that. The firefighters union were Mm -hmm. on this uh, podcast. Everybody should go back and listen to that episode. It was really amazing, uh, the amount of homeless encampment fires they deal with. So, you know, we all know that drug addicts, their first and most biggest priority is getting their drugs. So... You, let's say we move a bunch of people into housing, and well, I can't, I can't pay the utility bill because I need to go buy some fentanyl or whatever. Okay, so they don't have utilities on in the winter time, and then they decide they need to stay warm. So I don't know. They open their, they open the oven, or they decide to start a fire in the, in the living room. Who knows how high they are, what they do? Mm. You know, how many apartment fires are we going to start seeing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people that sneak into my building. or well, the whole building could go down then. Yeah, there's people that sneak into my building or possibly residents, I'm not sure which, that smoke drugs out in the stairwells. And, of, of course, you, you said that you had reported, before we started recording, you said you've been reporting that in your yeah. building, but I've reported to no it avail. to no avail. Yeah, it's like it's at the end of their yard. You know, that's kind of how I look at it. I don't understand. I don't understand it at all. But, you know, you're just sweeping. You're, you want to clean the streets, that's fine, but you just can't sweep this. You can't just sweep the problem behind closed doors, is what I'm saying. And I also believe that addicts... I also believe that the homeless addicts out there aren't homeless only because of COVID or because of job loss or whatever. I think that addiction, it stems from past traumas in our lives. I know for me that my own addictions stemmed from my own trauma. And I know for sure. And you had so much, like you lost your daughter and yeah, the last your partner was the murdered. Last, the last two and a half years of my life have been harder than the first two and a half after my daughter died. That speaks volumes, but Portlanders don't want to hear that. Why do you think that is, though? Be, I mean, what what could outweigh the death of your daughter? When I woke up and I found Nicole, and I went to pick her up, and I realized that she was laying there deceased. That 
that's that's an experience that I can't really explain. Um, it's like everything in your life just gets blown up at the very same time. All of your dreams for your future are gone. Um, and the loss is just, it's unlike any other loss I've ever experienced. So I think what happened with the riots was everything changed in a hurry. You know, like when that first flash grenade hit. It was fast. Everything changed, and then nothing changed. Everything stayed the same. The violence was the same. The violence grew. The riots grew. The anger, everything, everything just blew up. When Nicole died, there came a point in time where I knew it was final. It was over. And I had to just allow myself to grieve and move on and then, you know, venture out into the rest of my life, whatever that held in store. And with the riots, I had no idea when it was going to end. And knowing that at any moment, and still to this day, knowing that at any moment, anarchists can come through downtown and riot again or destroy or you know, their graffiti and the broken windows, all that crap they still do, I think that's what makes it harder is because there's no end to it. And you don't know when it's going to happen again. Right. It's always in the back of my mind. When? And, you know, with Kotek being elected, I have the right to say when. And she supported the riots. Her little aide got arrested, and, you know, she screamed, fuck the police, too. But I think that's the difference. And I think that's what made it so hard, because it was so, so stressful every single night. You know, and sleep-deprived. And I never got in that bad a shape after Nicole died. I think that's what's that's made amazing. It and obviously, you're still not on track. Mm-mm. So I refuse to let these people in Portland push me. Well, number one, I'm not going to go back to the place I was at like up until last summer when I hit these turning points, you know, and and I I started to try to make changes in my life. I'm not going to go back to being as depressed and despondent as I was. I refuse to let myself do that. How do you still get up out of bed every morning? Sometimes I don't know. Um... I have a story to tell, you know? You definitely do. And, um, I mean, you've got movies about you, and... I want to write a book about... You've been in, in media, and... Yeah. I want to write a book about the experience, you know? I, I just, think you should. You I, can self-publish on Amazon, you know? Yeah, I just can't do that yet because my head is so... I... I've been wondering the last couple of months if maybe the riots somehow, all that violence or all, all the, the stress or the anxiety or all of it combined, whatever, I'm wondering if, if some of it 
affected my brain. Um, and it's, it's really frustrating for me because I can be in the middle of something and walk away. Um, like, for example, a couple weeks ago, I got out of the shower, I cut my toenails, cut my fingernails, and then I'm at my desk later that afternoon, and I look at my hands, and I didn't cut the nails on my left hand. I made a pot of coffee one day, and I forgot to put the lid on it. I use a percolator. Like, I turn it on, everything's ready to go, I just, and I walk away. I was at Safeway doing grocery shopping and walked away from my cart. And it's like, I don't know if I'm in, like, a constant state of dissociative disorder, which is my, which is one of my mental illnesses. And I just have moments of reality or if it's because I'm so forgetful because my brain's been affected. And I think that this psychiatrist at, psych at Kaiser will be, able to, will be able to find out because he had done an MRI on my brain about four years ago, um, and he discovered a brain injury mm. from childhood that had gone undiagnosed. Do you recall the... The injury? The incident, yeah, that led to yeah. that? I was about seven or eight, and I was um, in the backyard where I lived and practicing for track and field day with my sister. Oh, wow. And we would run across the yard. We'd go down this little hill, touch the fence, and then we would come back across the yard and then touch the other fence and whoever, okay. So that's what was going on. I came running across the yard, and I tripped on the sidewalk, and the forward momentum I had going, um, I hit my head on a, about a two-foot retaining wall. Oh. And I split my head wide open. I had like 10 stitches as a kid. And um, a fractured skull. So It must have been scary for your parents. It had to be horrifying, yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember much about it. I remember being in the hospital and looking up and seeing the big white light. That's all I remember. So anyway, I think that I think all this stuff, all the I don't know, the noise or whatever, I think that it's affected my brain because I've never been like this before. I've never had this problem before. And it makes me absolutely crazy, especially if I'm shopping and I walk away from my cart. I'm just lucky when I went back that my bag was still in it. I'm shocked. That Safeway right here down the street? Tweaker Safeway. Yeah, the, the yeah <laughs> Tweaker Safeway up there. Well, we 10. all, yeah. it's funny. I, I've been, I've talked to people from various neighborhoods in Portland, and they were they all referred to their Safeway as the scary Safeway. And I said, I think all of us in every neighborhood in Portland refer to our Safeway as the scary Safeway. <laughs> it says a lot about the city. Mm -hmm. There's not, you know, there's no place you can go to really escape it anymore is there no huh no um, i don't know it's not going to get better anytime soon is it i don't know i i don't know i i i felt i will say i felt really hopeful i feel very hopeful with the election of renee Yes, yes, yes. I think he's great. 
He's going to work on, I know I know one of his bureaus is BOAC, the Bureau of Emergency Communications. We ne- desperately need, you know, and I know Mingus was at that before, and I like Mingus, um, but, you know, obviously we desperately need some change um, in that area. And um, I don't know, I don't know what was, what the challenges are there exactly. I know anybody can go and sit in and do like a Bureau of Emergency Communications quote unquote right along where you just sort of sit there and you get to get to observe any but any member of the public who clears the background check can do that and i mean i think i'd like to try to do that i mean, i just want to try to have some understanding of what's going on over there i think it would be good for anybody to do um but i know i like mingus i just i don't know what was happening with that so hopefully we'll see so and, and renee has fire so that's great um, because, you know, the firefighters came on here and were saying that they were not able to keep their fire stations open and running. They didn't have enough money to do it. They were short-staffed. They weren't able to hire more people. The Part of the problem stems from the amount of crime that not only they are subjected to but that they're responding to and fires intentionally and unintentionally being set by people on drugs or homeless people. or I mean, you know, the firefighters are wearing bulletproof vests now susan i know i know i mean in what city are our, our firefighters wearing bulletproof vests portland yeah I'm, I'm dying to know where else this is going on it's it's just it's very uh, and and i isaac mcclennan the head of the firefighters union when he was on you know he talked about th- things like how crime is impacting him personally and of course that impacts the amount of stress that he brings with him to the job and um you know we got to have a safe city for our for our citizens and of course for our first responders who are just risking their lives to help us yeah yeah i don't know i feel hopeless a lot but renee's election and it wasn't close no we knew early yeah. It wasn't one of those ones where we were, it wasn't even as close as the governor, I don't think. It wasn't, wasn't one of those ones where we were just sort of sitting and waiting. I mean, we knew pretty early that the projections were going to go his way. And so um, for those of you who don't know, Renee Gonzalez defeated Joanne Hardesty in the latest uh, round of city council general elections. That was the one seat that was up because um, Dan... Ryan received enough votes to not have to run again. If you get over 50%, you're, you're in, and you don't have to do the general election. So we, had, we just had one city council seat up. That was Joanne Hardesty's, who had defended the police by $27 million or led that charge. Of course, city council signed off on that and had to mm-hmm. sign off on that, and they're implicated in this as well. But she led the charge for that. So um, she is is off council now, but of course, as we spoke about before with charter reform, she OPB at least is saying she's a lock to be back on. I'm just really tired of watching people dying on our streets. Yeah, you said there was a body taken away just the other day. Last week, two doors down from my front door. They picked up a man's body who had, um, my neighbors uh, said that, that he had overdosed on fentanyl, overdosed. I don't know if it was fentanyl, but overdosed. 
and he'd been homeless and in, in and around the neighborhood for quite a while. That's yeah. so sad. And then a couple of weeks ago, I think it was down maybe by Oak and First in that area. I'm not real sure, but they they had showed a picture of a a woman's body being picked up. Oh my gosh! There was one where was this? Where did they show a picture? It was on Twitter. Oh my god! They showed uh, well. There was a picture of that someone took of the the um the corners van. Oh my goodness! Taking pictures of where he would, the coroner was taking pictures of where she had been laying. They didn't actually show her, you know. They didn't show a picture right, of her. Right, right. But still. And then I think one of my neighbors was standing there watching because it looks like it look. There's one lady in the photograph that looks a lot like one of my neighbors. Oh my god! And this one neighbor I'm talking about has been horribly affected by these riots, like I have. Say more about about that um well you know when the riots first started there was three of us that hung out together and i would tell them all the time we have to stick together because we are all we have and then as the riots progressed and the violence progressed and we all went through our own journeys going through all of this i haven't seen her now in probably about a month but um She was in contact with the city or tried to be in contact with the city about getting us some help. She's really struggled with the depression and the anger and the fear, all of that stuff that I struggle with. We had a lot in common. Um, and I think now she's to the point, and when the, my other friend there too, I think they're both to the point that they're just too scared to come outside like so many of my neighbors. I just never see them outside anymore. And is that what they tell you? That's what I can assume, because I, I haven't seen them in so long. I know I'm scared to go out, and I know a lot of my neighbors are scared to go out, and they won't go out unless there's two or three other people going out. You know, we used to be able to go outside and sit and just chat, chit-chat all day long and not have to worry about anything, about our safety or anything. And it's, it's just not like that anymore. There's a lot of people in my building who have been assaulted. One man was stabbed, almost died. One man was beaten up in the South Park blocks. And, you know, we are oh my gosh. we are walking targets. We're elderly people. We're disabled. A lot of us use mobi- mobility devices. We're easy targets. And, you know, so many of these people, just like me, didn't call the police. I mean, I'm sure what the stabbing and the beating they did, but, you know, like getting mugged or something, getting robbed or something, people don't call the police. And that's probably... It would be a lot different if we were all 20 or 30 years younger, you know, if, if we could take care of ourselves, if we could defend ourselves. And physically, physically stronger, you mean, for instance? Physically stronger, even able to turn around and run, you know? And if, if I, I know the two, the two times, like in May and in December when I was assaulted and then robbed, I mean, there's nothing I could have done to avoid either one. And the, the assault before that, which was in the summer of 2021, 
I was coming home from Safeway that time, and two homeless guys started harassing me, wanting money or what was ever in my bag. And I just kept trying to walk, and they started pounding on my, or stepping on my toes, stomping on my toes. And naturally, I turned to run. I wasn't in a wheelchair then. I turned to run, and of course, I can't run because of my brace. And down I went. Once I was down, I was kicked so and scary. stomped, kicked and stomped, and then they just grabbed my bags and left. It's so scary. That's why they don't go outside. Because we know how dangerous it is. We know how scary it is. Yeah, and you have to live in the middle of all of it, right in the heart of downtown. Right in the heart, right in the heart of downtown. All my friends in Portland have walked out of my life, you know, as a result of all of this. Talk more about that. Well, you know, before the riots, I had a lot of Democrat friends. I, had, I knew a lot of people in Portland. Well, you, you are a Democrat. Yeah. Re- I still Lifelong. Am. Yeah, and I still am registered Democrat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you saying that. And um, I, mean, I had a lot of friends, and then the riots started, and, and I was trying to talk about the riots and what was really happening, and nobody wanted to believe that because everybody was so pissed off about George Floyd's murder. And, you know, we were seeking justice and blah, blah, blah. And, and the more I would talk about how the, how the reality of what it was like downtown, people just started dropping like flies. I was getting blocked on Facebook. People stopped calling me. People stopped texting. And what, have they, did they say why? No. But I can only assume it's because of the riots. My family has quit talking to me. I mean, I was going to ask about your sister. My sister was trying to tell me that Portland isn't as bad as it is, not as liberal or as whatever. Well, and liberals fine. This is way beyond. This is way. Uh, this I, is l- criminality, lawlessness, filth, trash, hu- human det- detritus, human body strewn out in the gutters. This is this is this is worse than third world country living conditions. Right. I th- I, I don't know. I think, I think open air drug dens. Yeah, she might be like that because I don't know. Maybe she feels guilty for, you know, like leaving me up here. I don't know. If my dad or my brother were alive, I wouldn't be in Portland, Oregon. I know that. I believe that. Because what? why is that? Well, the rest of my family is just really dysfunctional. You know, like my younger brother hasn't spoken to me in, I don't know, a couple of decades, maybe more. I I'm so know. sorry. Then my sister, she's my twin, but we're not close at all. Um, and then my mom, I don't know what's going on with her. She's just, she's older, and I think that, um, I just don't think that she completely understands what's going on in the world. I don't know, but 
I don't know if, if my daughter were alive and my daughter called me and said, Mom, I'm in a really bad place and I'm in the middle of all this rioting and all this violence and all those things I told my mom, I would be on the phone or at least texting her once a day saying, how are you doing? And to this day, I mean, two and a half years since the riots started, I said, she's never even contacted me, never even called me. I'm so sorry. And I don't know what that, I don't know what that's all about. I, I just, I don't understand all of that. So what support do you have? I've had none. I've had none. But that's one reason that I want to, um, there's a guy I know on Twitter, um, and I know him from Facebook too, from a couple groups there, and he's a recovering addict and heroin addict. He's been clean for a long, long time, and you know he's offered to take me to some NA meetings. And I'm ready to do that now, you know, to build myself some, to build, to try to build myself a support system. It's really hard being alone. Yeah. Probably the hardest part of all. Yeah, nobody should be alone, especially you. You're vulnerable. You're not easily mobile. You're not in good shape mentally, physically. Absolutely not. Everybody needs community. Mm-hmm. It would be different if the people in my building were more community-oriented, but we're not. We're just not. It's, it's never been like that. It's never been a building where you know people get together on a regular basis or anything. Yeah. I mean, and so like... You know, I have a couple of friends, and, you know, we all go through our own stuff. I have one friend right now who's getting ready to go in for her, I think it's her seventh heart surgery. Oh, my goodness. In the last two and a half years. Oh, my goodness. She goes in on the 19th. And, like, I haven't talked to her in the last few days because she's in a really bad place because of all this. She's Mm -hmm, very depressed mm -hmm. and very scared. Of course. And then I go through my periods where I'm not able to, to reach out to her. And so we all kind of flounder, knowing that we're there for each other, but it's just a matter of floundering and just knowing that we're there, you know? Mm-hmm. If we can get together, we do, but otherwise, you know, like my neighbors, just like me, sit in an apartment, sit in a, in a tiny little apartment and do nothing. It's not the way to live, and it's not the way that people living the last years of their lives should be living. All my neighbors are older than me. I'm Which is scary. I mean, if, 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 because potentially they're even more vulnerable. Yeah. They're in the 70s, 80s, <sighs> probably a couple in their 90s. And yeah, they, they're very vulnerable. Much more so than me, I think, sometimes. And I say that, too, because I don't think a lot of them truly understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know? Because they're not out of the building ever? Right. How do they get meals and things? Meals on wheels. Oh, delivers. Okay. So they're really just stuck in a box. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of neighbors that tell me, well, this is my, pre-cos- my pre-casket coffin. Oh, my God. That's one of the saddest things I've ever heard. Do they talk about why? Or or if they're scared or what they're scared of? or I mean, do they ever talk to you about any of that? 
the ones that will talk to me, yeah, they're terrified. What do they say? You know, Kathy, my friend, getting ready, going for surgery, has lived in that apartment building for 30 years. 30 years downtown. And she tells me that she has never, I mean, she's seen downtown go through some stuff, but she's never, ever seen or did she ever imagine that downtown would be mm. come what it has. And she's devastated. I think that they're all just really devastated because a lot of those people have lived there a long, long time. Mm-hmm. I've been mm-hmm. there seven years, six years, seven years. And that's their home. And then they watch their home just explode and, and because they're old and they just figured they've got no voice in anything. It's just something we got to get through. And coffin casket. How does that make you feel? Personally, it makes me determined because I don't want to die in that building. I don't want to die thinking that this is just something I have to put up with. Right. Or that... Um, I'm just stuck in that building from now until the day I do die. I'm not, I, I don't, that's not what I want for me. And so I think that's part of what keeps me going, keeps me moving forward. It keeps me talking because I want people to understand what happened to downtown. I want them to understand that everything that that we knew, that residents in downtown Portland knew, and I think I can pretty much speak for maybe all of them, that everything changed and that we lost out on so much. There was so much that was taken from us that we just can't get back. And so I don't know, maybe for some of these people, it's, it's a matter of, of grieving all of that loss and not even understanding why, all of, why everything happened. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm not giving up. You know, I Please, no. We don't I want you to. I you can't give up. I did not go through the last year and a half, especially, of my life to give up. You cannot give up. And look at, look at the press you've gotten. I know. Your voice is out there. You know, someone on Twitter told me one day, and this I think it was right before I was assaulted, they said to me, Susan, we see you, we hear you, and we support you, but we can only do that from where we're at. And then they said to me, you have to find something bigger than you. You have to find God. And what did you think of that? I knew that she was right. I knew that, I knew that there were people out there supporting me, um, and yet I think at that point I still questioned it, you know, um, because I was, I'm so untrusting of people. So it, it took a while getting a following. Yes. I mean, I just opened this account last March. Right. You know? And Which is crazy because it feels like it's been years. Yeah. <laughs> so much has happened. Yeah. It, um... Not just in the city, but... Life, yeah. 
life moves on. Well, so many crazy things happen in the city on a regular basis that we just like, it's hard to keep up with it all. Yeah. I used to try to keep up with all the murders. And then last year, I just, at some point, I just knew I couldn't do that anymore. No. Because every time I read about one, I was just enraged all over again. And it wasn't doing me any good to get that angry. No. Um, I don't. I, I, I don't try to pay attention to local news now. I pick up stories every once in a while, you know. Um, I, 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 I think that's common. I think God must sit up there and look down and think, what the fuck, Portland? <laughs> I mean, even God must look <laughs> down and say, what the hell? Oh, I'm sure, <laughs> well, it's it would be the human... Um, condition here in this city is what's devastating just the bodies lying all over the streets yeah and the way we allow people to live is is really devastating it's like is this really the united states of america i I know it's amazing it's happening in the u.s it's amazing and nobody believes it unless they see it i don't believe anybody can truly believe and that's i think that's right i think that's why jonathan cho does on Twitter, I think that's why he does videos of Seattle, because he's always being told what's happening in Seattle isn't really happening, and that's why Jonathan Cho does everything on video. Yeah, we need somebody like that up here. Farley does pretty good. Who is? That? I don't know who that is. Um, what's his first? Is that a? Is that a? Is it a local media person, or is it a Twitter he's, person, or is it? I think I met him in Facebook. Okay. Actually, okay. Oh, it's a Facebook first, page. No. Uh-uh. He's he's a videographer oh, and okay. he walks around downtown. Oh. Okay. Um, and he takes videos. And it's, he's on. Where does he publish them? I know he's on Twitter. I'm trying to think. Oh. Of that. Okay. Farley. I can't. I can't remember if that's his first name or last name. And I don't know what his Twitter handle is. Okay. Offhand. Okay. But he does, he takes some videos of, of what happens downtown and pictures of downtown. Um, I don't think he does. Brandon it. Farley? Brandon, that's it. That's it. Yeah. So his handle is at the, the real Farley. That's it. Yep, that's it. He posts some pretty good videos. He caught a video of the um, last weekend, I think, of some guys up there at Freddy's smoking fentanyl. Right outside the store doorways, and one guy nodding off. You know how they're all bent over and they're. You know. I see it. Yeah, it says, uh, it, it, Brandon Farley's post says, "Last night in Northwest Portland, two men nodding off on fentanyl in apartment lobby." That one, yeah, that one too. Yeah. Well. And people don't like him either, you know, for showing the truth. I would take videos, but I'm too scared. For the I know. I get a few videos, but not very many. Well, you're, it's, I, I mean, if you see J- Jonathan's, J- so Jonathan took me on a walking tour of Seattle uh, last weekend, and I was almost assaulted, and he had to step in front of me and this woman. Yeah, and he wow. grabbed her, and he actually grabbed, he was, he's so smart, 
he's so great. He grabbed her in a hug and um, he just grabbed her in a big hug and diverted her and, and was talking to the woman about me saying, she's cool, she's cool, she's cool. Because mm-hmm. she just locked in on me right away. And even a commenter said something like, what was it about that woman who set off that? They thought this particular home, homeless person or, or um, person who was out on the streets I'm, I'm, I don't know if she was homeless, but mm-hmm. thought is, is masculine looking and the commenter thought it was a man and said, why was that man so triggered by that, by that woman who's with you? And, uh, and Jonathan said, no, I know her. She was just having a bad day. And I mean, he's just so, he really cares about the people he documents. He's following them. He, he's trolled as, as being uncompassionate. It's the same way you're criticized, the same way a lot of us are criticized as being uncompassionate because he, he, he believes in, in um, he he believes in rehabilitation. He believes in detox. He believes housing first isn't going to solve things. He believes in in that harm reduction is making things worse. He doesn't. He thinks open air drug markets are shouldn't be allowed. Um, you know he doesn't he doesn't think people should be allowed to sleep on the streets. Yeah. Uh, so of course he's trolled as well, but he really cares. I mean, I, I, the last, I did an episode with him and he said, and I totally believe him after I spent most of last weekend with him at a leadership retreat. And he said he absolutely cares about the homeless and he wants to tell their stories. And he wants to follow them and he wants to tell the good stories about when they do better. And he does know them and they all know him. And I know this because I went along with him and anyway, it's all on Twitter, but mm-hmm. um, he's, in, including the part where he inter, interfaces with this woman and and saves me from mm-hmm. <laughs> what probably probably what what certainly could have been an assault. Um, and this is why, like, he asked me about Portland in the video, and I said, I, I don't, I would never do this walking around downtown Portland. I would never ever interact with the homeless. I said, I go, I go to when I go to downtown for like work, I walk as fast as I can, and I don't stop and I don't interact. Mm-hmm. And I think, of course, that's the safest way to do it. And we were in a group, and I was with I was with one other woman, and the rest were men. Um, and one of them was Jonathan, and one of them was um, this guy Grant Denton, who's on um, Twitter. He's from Reno, and he was is also part of our coalition, um, this leadership coalition that we met with last weekend. And he has these the same views that we, we, we shouldn't be leaving people out on the street to die. And he's basically built like an MMA fighter. So I was just standing really close to them, but even that didn't deter this, this woman from getting really close to me. So anyway, um, yeah, no, I mean, when people can videotape this stuff, I think it's really helpful. I do too. I do too. People need to see the truth. And media, you know, Jonathan says media is too scared to do it. You know, he worked in media. He was at Como until he was fired for just, he covered a Proud Boys rally, and they had some Nazi music playing. And he didn't know what it was, but the Antifa and far-left people accused him of promoting and platforming the Proud Boys because the this Nazi music was playing, and he had video of them. And anyway, he ended up being fired from Como News. And he got fortunately got picked up by the Discovery Institute, so he's doing all his documenting from the Discovery Institute, who's really interested in shining a light on the homelessness crisis, and that's something they're focused on. So that's really what he does. He's got this homeless beat in Seattle. And it looks like this guy, you know, Brandon does too, which is great. And I think that helps. 
of course, they'll, you know, people will argue the videos are doctored and it, the whole city's not like that. And I don't think anybody disputes that there there's a street or two that you can walk around in um, that where things aren't an issue. But... They're few and far between. They are. Well, and you would know because you're trying to navigate in a in a wheelchair. Well, before we wrap up here, what what else what else do you want to say? What do you want people to know? I think that Portland is worth fighting for, um, and I think it's cool that we all have our own fight in this, and that um, some of us have managed to. get together and fight it fight as a group and yet for for our own cause does I, I sometimes wonder if I make sense um, why why because my mind wanders so much <laughs> well there's a lot wanders. on it there's a lot on your mind but I do believe that Portland's worth fighting for I know that um, We've got a long road ahead of us. Um, I, for one, don't plan on, you know, silencing myself. Um, and I encourage anyone uh, to to speak out. And you know, if if you're scared of speaking out, just stay a little bit at a time. You know, I think that people need to. I think more people need to start speaking up and talking about how disgusted they are with the condition of Portland. Um, and I think disgusted is, 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 is a fine example. Um, we are not the city that we were. I don't think we'll ever be the city that we were again. Um, but if we all just sit down and say nothing and let this continue, nothing is going to change. And so, you know, like, uh, I, I would hope that everyone can um, resist. Uh, I hope that everyone can resist those who tell you that you're not compassionate. Um, Maybe resist isn't the right word. I think that I think that a lot of Portlanders don't understand, truly understand addiction, um, what causes that. And let me say one thing about that. I don't believe that it's, you know, a, a matter of losing a job or losing your home or whatever that that causes addiction. I think that addiction stems, did I say this already? No. I think that addiction stems from a past experience in our life that was traumatic. Everyone goes through those things. Um, everyone deals with trauma. Everyone deals with trauma in different ways. Some people choose to run away from their trauma with using alcohol and drugs. And for example, Connie, my partner, had two instances in her life that she could not let go of and she could not forgive herself for, even though she wasn't at fault. And one of those was 
her father and mother were both alcoholic, um, and her father mm. was a, a violent alcoholic. Her mother, she was in Kansas. She was 14, and her mother was in a hospital, uh, I guess about 100 miles away from the town she lived in. And she had her leg amputated from the knee down because of diabetes. And her dad, at 14, made her at 14 drive in the snow to go get her mom and bring her mom home from the hospital because he was too drunk. So she went down to Wichita. That's where her mom was. She got her mom, and she brought her all the way home, and things were good until they got home. And she said that she was helping her mom come up the stairs, and she was holding her from the back under the arms, trying to help her get up the stairs on the ice, and that she slipped, and that when her... When her mom went down, she hit the stump of her leg and, of course, split everything, the stitches, everything wide open. That's one thing Connie couldn't deal with. And she blamed herself because her dad blamed her for dropping her. And then there was another instance. Poor child. There was another instance when she was 12 and living in the abusive house that she did at the age of 12, she had so much anger and rage in her that she beat another child and almost killed this other child. Oh, my God. And the judge, her, the judge's name, Connie always called her Judge Martha, instead of removing Connie from this abusive home and putting her in foster care, which she probably would have been a lot better off, The judge sent her back home. And those were two things that Connie just could not let go of. And that's why she drank. And that's why she used the way she did. So I don't believe that addiction is just caused from, you know, losing your job or from COVID or whatever. I believe that addiction is caused from something that we want to run away from that happened that was traumatic. And that's what Portlanders don't hear. Portlanders would much rather believe that they're homeless and they're drug addicts because they're homeless or because they lost their job or because whatever, whatever, whatever. But I believe addiction stems from past experience and past trauma. What about the argument that, okay, addiction stems from past trauma and we can recognize that and still believe that maybe trauma might be a confluence of events like a miss like you know the city and county say hey you know a lot of these people are or or joint office a lot of these people are one paycheck away from homelessness a lot of these people just missed a couple rent payments a lot of these people are you know some of them are working etc Are they just talking about homeless, or are they talking about homeless addicts? We have to make that distinction, don't we? Because there are homeless people. There was a story on the news a few months back about a woman. We have to make that distinction, yeah. Yeah, about a woman sleeping in a shelter. She was working at Rite Aid full-time. Right. And, uh, of course, after this news story, she got housing. But, you know, so we have to make that distinction. Are we... I think that people who are in shelters and working, and they're just having they fell into hard times, they definitely need help. They definitely need 
assistance into getting back into housing because we already know that they're responsible, that they were contributing members of society, right? If they just lost their job because of an illness or whatever, they paid their bills and all that before. Well, I mean, that you certainly know everything about that. So, the, distinct, the, the distinction, when I talk about homeless people, I don't talk about, you know, about the homeless junkies. I'm not including the people out there who are in shelters and working every day and trying to get their lives back so that they can become, once again, you know, the contributing members of society that they want to be. But when you're dealing with the junkies out here who don't give a shit about anybody but themselves, and they're out looking for their next high, and if they can't get what they need for that, they're looking for their next victim, those bastards need to be locked up, prosecuted, sent away. Society doesn't need that. Yeah, and it's not doing us any good, is it? guess that's about it well thanks for coming back thanks for having me <laughs> anytime nice meeting you this anytime <laughs> we finally got to see each other in person this time oh anytime i'm so sorry susan but i'm glad you're here i'm glad you're still here i'm i i'm not glad you're in portland because i know you'd do better somewhere else but i'm glad you're here physically today and and still with us and my job here is not done yet using your voice i have to believe that my job's not done if my job was done i would have been able to leave in july well yeah maybe that might be right but look at you you know look at what you've done since then been able to do i'm not as bad as i was i mean i'm healthier a little bit you look great i mean i know you're I'm not waking up You've every probably, day. You, you're probably too thin, sure. And I know your legs are weak, but you you know, you look great. I know, but give me six months or a year at Kaiser and I bet this all I changes. think so too. And, and you actually, your arms are all jacked because you're rolling around in that wheelchair. Yeah, my arms are. <laughs> People better be careful if they, can come, if they come within fist distance of you. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And of course, you, we, can, we can find you on Twitter, right? Yeah. What's your handle? Rumble Dumbs. <laughs> R U M B L E D U M B S. Rumble Dumbs. And why did I think pick Rumble Dumbs? Because they rumble when they're dumb. <laughs> and is that your is that the name or is that the actual handle? I'm trying to oh, find it. Oh, the actual handle would be Susan Griffin 530. Yeah, okay. Because I think that's the easiest way for them to find you. Susan Griffin 530. But yeah, yes, your name changes depending on how you're f- feeling. You might change your, the name of the yeah. of the Twitter account, but that's your, but yeah. that's your handle. I, uh, my handle was PDX Riot Survivor. I remember that. And I just got real tired of seeing the word survivor up there. Mm. And I decided I didn't want to be surviving any, I mean... I just surviving. Just you want to thrive. You want to thrive. I want to thrive. thrive. Yeah, exactly. of course. Of course. So then I thought, well, I've got to come up with something kind of cute, but kind of, something kind of fitting. And, yeah, when they come downtown to ride, they rumble and they're dumb. Rumble dumbs. <laughs> rumble Dumbleton. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of people who have been looking forward to you coming back on, so I'm glad that you did. Thank you so much.
good to see you.